You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this very first episode of 2022 for the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as he has since the start of this podcast several years ago is uh, ITK analyst David Leach. David, I trust you are well and you've had a good break. Giles, I, I trust I am well. I trust you also well. I trust all our listeners are well. Also enjoyed their break and uh, hopefully by now we're all Cracking on with what promises to be an exciting 2022 uh, with new uh, projects and ideas and continuation of old ones. And along that theme, it's a hello to our special guest this week. Yes, we're joined uh, for this first episode of 2022 by financial analyst Tim Buckley. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. I trust you had a good break too. Yes, I did. Thanks. And thanks very much for having me on, Giles and David. Great to be here. What, now, normally I'd introduce you as the um, as, as the lead analyst for um, IEFA, the Institute of Energy Analysis and um, ooh, what was the rest of it? I can't remember now. But um, you've announced uh, this week that you're um, moving on. You're one of the founding people there. What's, uh, what's going on, Tim? Yeah, so a change is as good as a break. And I have announced this week that I'm leaving IEFA in the very capable hands of the crew that we have. We know it's grown dramatically and... Uh, I, I want to return to getting back into the research, getting my hands dirty and uh, making sure I'm doing research and finding insightful ideas and trying to have the time to do the analysis of what's really going on and what in the world with a primary focus on China and India and global finance and then trying to relate it back to Australia. So uh, I'm uh, setting up a new uh, think tank. It's Australian-based, Australian-funded, and it's called Climate energy finance climate energy finance well good luck with that venture and we look forward to seeing your analysis and reports um, um tim, tim could i ask what's the kind of uh, funding or revenue model will you be selling a subscription product uh, or, or, or how do you pl- think about that no and it, it's a good question dave and good to get it out in the open no i'm a hundred percent funded by philanthropy and we have no subscription we have no, we charge no one for our discussions it's all about trying to promote public interest ideas free a hundred percent free of vested interests and um, biases so obviously i have my own personal biases as to technology and finance and what needs to happen but uh, no, as you and I have worked in finance for 30 years, everyone has conflicts of interest. So I am funded by philanthropy. They're Australian philanthropists. Their absolute goal is to drive a sustainable uh, economy for Australia, and that means decarbonisation. And at the end of the day, that is economically sensible. So I'm 100% aligned with that, as you and Giles both know me well. Well, congratulations on that and good luck for the venture. Guys, let's just get into what we think is going to be happening in 2022. But I just thought we might just start off with just some questions about what sort of struck you over the last couple of months since we, I think we did the last podcast just before Christmas. Um, Six weeks has passed. Um, Anything, David, which has emerged, which has sort of struck you? Um, I know you've actually already given a interesting analysis about Queensland electricity prices and how that sort of represents a bit of a failure work 
complete failure actually of their energy policy. And I was fascinated to note in the quarterly energy dynamics issued by AEMO, which is an increasingly insightful document, uh, well, insightful document full stop, about this north-south divide which has emerged and been identified by EMO. Um, the states with the most fossil fuels or the most de biggest dependence on coal have much higher electricity prices than um, those that rely more on wind and solar. Well, Giles, it's, that's true. And you'll have noted that I've written, I write these occasional articles myself, which has uh, been saying the same thing for months and months and months. Uh, and it's obvious to anyone that follows the electricity market that prices uh, are much lower in Victoria and consequently in South Australia and Tasmania than they are in Queensland and, and New South Wales. And the single biggest reason for that is a lack of transmission capacity, uh, particularly between New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, and there are various, uh, it's too long a technical discussion to get into that, but essentially Victoria is, uh, can't get all as much energy as it would like into New South Wales to take advantage of those prices. So it's not uh, a national electricity market at the moment. It's really two distinct regions. That, that, so that's the thing. As far as what I, I hope to continue, like last year, I had one of my themes uh, was to promote uh, virtual synchronous machines or grid forming inverters. And, you know, on this podcast, we ran two or three or four interviews that looked at what was happening in, in the off-grid market in West Australia and how, you know, major linked up mainly by Alinta to, to run an essentially renewable grid of significant size. So, and that theme will continue. And I think that AEMO is now funding uh, or batteries that will perform that role in the NEM. So the change in the control system for the grid is going to be an ongoing theme that I think has momentum of its own at the moment. Another theme of mine is that for this year is certainly going to be Queensland. Uh, if you compare the ISP scenarios, progressive change with uh, uh, step change, uh, which uh, the, 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 the state where it really, New South Wales doesn't change very much in either scenario because, because our course is set here. We're going to have this 12 gigawatts of new renewables and the coal stations are going to close. It doesn't really matter what. Victoria's role is going to likely decline uh, in the future as an energy supplier as the brown coal goes away. It's just not particularly economically advantaged, I suppose, for to to supply energy to the broader NEM, uh, that's a, that's Victorians will probably disagree with that, but that's the way it kind of shows up in the modelling, uh, and that leaves Queensland as a sort of state that makes the big difference. Uh, they they have enormous investment opportunities in wind and solar in Queensland, but they won't be able to do that uh, unless they both grow demand, which they can do through green hydrogen if they're lucky, but it's still uh, problematic. And secondly, they need to uh, do something, you know, if they're going to meet the curette, it just isn't going to be met unless they do some, make some decisive action. And in, in, in all of these things, sorry to talk such a lot, but you need to build the new supply before you close the old stuff. That's the overwhelming imperative. You have to keep the lights on. You have to build the new supply first. So those investments decisions come. They create a lot of investment and some jobs, not a, not a fantastic number of jobs. Uh, having done that, you, it, they, you're then able to close the old supply and you've also made closing the old supply inevitable because you've got too much supply and it's the old thermal-based stuff that becomes uneconomic. 
And then my other theme for this year is going to be talking a bit about networks, which we don't talk enough about, and community batteries and how this change in the overall grid scheme uh, can become more decentralised, more autonomous, uh, and we can all live uh, better and happier lives, Giles. That's, that's it for me locally. Uh, this will be an international side as well, but Tim can talk about that. Yeah, I might get Tim to talk about that in a minute. But um, just a point of clarification, um, you talked about our EMO and grid-forming inverters. Uh, we did actually have Alinta talking about them um, last year. Um, since then, we've actually got a, um, a big battery being built um, by Hitachi at Tom Price for Rio Tinto. And then just before Christmas, we had the result of the Darwin big battery, which is going to have a similar thing. And as uh, Renew Economy wrote in late November, it's actually the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which is set up a new funding round to have at least three big batteries sort of focused on grid forming inverters uh, capabilities in the main grid. I mean, there's been a couple now who are playing it in different ways, um, but they're going to be um, making sure that um, these can be rolled out at scale and in the future. Um, unfortunately, the confirmation of that wasn't actually sort of sent out by the uh, Minister Taylor's office until Christmas Eve, um, which was a brilliant way of making sure that no one noticed. But uh, of course we did. And um, so we've written about it, but um, that's going to be quite fascinating. Um, Tim, just to touch on one of the things that David talked about and going back to the north-south divide uh, between sort of Queensland and New South Wales and the, and the renewable states further south, um, David's good point that you really need to get capacity in there before um, allowing things or sort of, you know, things exit. We've seen this conversation happen internationally over the last couple of months, particularly in Europe and the UK, um, big gas prices and essentially gas shortages um, forcing electricity prices up. And then you've got some people sort of saying, well, this is a reason why you shouldn't go to renewables because look, the prices have gone up. And other people sort of saying, well, no, <laughs> it's because we haven't got enough renewables in there and let's build some more and you bring that price down because you rely less on gas. How is that debate unfolding? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting Angle, it's certainly been very, very topical at the end of last year and into this year. The fossil fuel supply chain has actually been underinvested in over the last two years as all of the increased priority and focus on decarbonisation, it's actually seen capital flight. And so as soon as we saw demand recover, and in particular in China, I mean, the Chinese economy for the first nine months of last year was red hot. It was booming. And so when China sneezes, the rest of the world gets a, catches a cold. And then chuck on that, you've got Putin playing political games in Europe. So what, we, what was really, really highlighted is that fossil fuels, commodities are extremely volatile. And they, uh, as soon as you see demand recover, you saw prices go through the roof. And we're not talking about 10, 20, 50, 100%. We're talking 500% in coal. We're talking 1,000% inflation in LNG, massive shortages. And so if anything, uh, that's massively disrupted the global energy system. And I think will just accelerate the decarbonisation as we saw, like there was just a breathtaking announcement in Scotland about 25 gigawatts of offshore wind being tendered out. The Scottish government was paid 700 million pounds to licence 25 gigawatts of new um, offshore wind, half floating, half um, fixed. And that's a scale never seen before until the Chinese come onto the radar, which they're doing it at an enormous speed. So I think 2021 ended, 2022 has started with the extreme volatility and consequences of extreme 
volatility in commodity prices, in fossil fuel commodity prices. And one thing is absolutely contrasted with that is the renewable energy. Once you've built it, you have absolute certainty. It is a financial instrument over the next 25, 30 years. You have the absolute clarity of the cost. There's a zero marginal cost. You know the fixed price. And I think the market's going to come to understand commodities, volatility versus renewables, financial certainty. Yes, and it's that cost of capital uh, disadvantage that uh, thermal energy also faces that's generally not factored into most of the models, but I won't say any more about that. No, David, let me pick up. I agree with you 100%. And it was interesting to see Woodside come out in their um, Capital Markets Day in December. Meg really highlighted that and said, I mean, her numbers were 10% return on investment for renewables, 12% for gas, 15% for oil. I think she's got it wrong. She's absolutely understated the divergence of cost of capitals because the reality is renewable energy infrastructure is lucky to get 5 or 6% rates of return. But like BP, Woodside's kidding themselves, thinking they're going to get a 10% return. The financial markets don't need a 10% return on infrastructure when bond rates are 1%, 2%. Giles, I'm going to ask you a question in a second. Uh, and I suppose my question is this. How much of a theme do you think uh, vehicle to the grid uh, might become? I see there's a big conference coming up in Europe uh, to discuss this topic over two days. We're seeing EVs emerging now, the few that actually ever exist that can actually supply, you know, five kilowatts and uh, to a house uh, in theory. And, you know, the average EV battery can run a house for a week, say, Uh, We just need a few little boxes to plug it in uh, to the actual main grid of the house and and then we could really transform the grid in a major way. Do you see that emerging as a bit of a thing? Well, look, I certainly hope it will, but it seems to be sort of um, uh, strongly delayed in Australia. Um, The Nissan Leaf, um, the new model Nissan Leaf, which has these capabilities, arrived in Australia in 2020. Um, but we actually haven't seen them rolled out at scale with this vehicle to grid technology. I know there's been trials and this continues to be trials in the ACT and I think was in Victoria. We haven't actually heard back from much of those trials at the moment. I think the problem comes with the sort of the standards and the standardizations and the interaction with the network and the network people having a few questions and a few concerns and possibly at the market operator level, I'm not really too sure. We've certainly seen it happen a lot quicker in, in Europe. What is interesting is actually seeing these new models which are coming out with vehicle to load. So they haven't actually worried about the vehicle to grid technology like the Nissan Lee. So we've got the um, the uh, the Ionic 5 and the EV6 and there's a fair few other models also coming out. Simply just got a normal plug um, available, a um, um, in the car so you can just sort of you know roll, plug in an appliance as we did uh, when we test drove the Ionic 5 last year and just plugged in the pl- plugged in the kettle and uh, made, it, made ourselves a cup of tea which was very pleasant but, but Giles um, there's, no, there's no reason why that same plug couldn't plug directly into the switchboard of, of your uh, house you know like at my house now uh, uh, we 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 got rid of the we've got a like a heat exchanger on the pool and the solar and we've actually got a Tesla Powerwall and the Tesla Powerwall runs into the into our power box. There's really no reason why you shouldn't have a switch <laughs> that basically just plugs the car battery in where the Tesla Powerwall would have gone. 
Well, I'm not really too sure about that. I'm not an electrician. I don't know whether that works um, like that. I mean, I know you can certainly run an extension cord out there and have all your sort of your, your appliances that use um, plugs um, running on the house. Um, the interaction with the meter box, I'm not too sure. You certainly, with this sort of technology, won't be able to sort of link back into the grid. And one of the problems with the vehicle-to-grid technology is that the cabling uh, is actually really, really expensive. I think it's about, um, oh, God, it's a couple of thousand dollars at least, and possibly even $10,000, I think, for the Nissan one. So unless you've got or actually advanced systems which actually sort of give you an incentive and a financial incentive to actually do that then um, people will probably be quite happy to have a vehicle to load technology which gives them backup in an emergency so they don't want the lights to go out or the fridge to go off um, the vehicle to grid technology certainly isn't here yet yet we've have people planning it you talk about the networks you talk about the retailers the retailers are very much into um, electric vehicles and making sure that they've got their charging covered because they know that's going to be the future the networks are still thinking about how that um, interacts with the load and the demand management aemo is thinking about it as we heard at the conference that we had a couple of years ago um, the actual technical specifications are obviously still well short Tim, have you got anything to add on that? I'm not too sure whether you've looked into into this sort of um, in this area. Uh, I think it's going to be a huge area, but uh, yeah, I'm certainly not an electrician, and uh, no, I, I just think vehicle to grid is going to be a huge area. We have to get on with it. It's going to be an enormous source of storage capacity. It's going to accelerate the deployment of rooftop solar. So we haven't seen anything yet, and that in its own right will then distort the further overload the market when it's really sunny we're going to have a huge amount of solar coming through that'll accelerate the deployment of electric vehicles and so no, i just see the whole thing accelerating and uh, aemo is struggling to keep up with the magnitude of the momentum the change as david talked about they're doing their absolute best with the integrated system plan but put in vehicle to grid vehicle to load that's just going to complicate it further and that's going to come no 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 it's hour. not tim it's actually going to simplify it's it's uh you can easily see it as something that makes it easier and i just uh not that i would uh, uh i'm an engineer either but you know we already have virtual power plants uh which are household batteries essentially uh, uh going to the grid if you think about it, there's just a cable that goes from the battery into your meter box. There's no really reason why that shouldn't be a junction ca cable. Just to, It won't be. It'll be something more sophisticated that just actually when the voltage in the car battery is a bit higher than the voltage in the actual power wall that you've got, starts coming from the uh, car battery uh, instead. So actually you can have vehicle to the grid by having vehicle to the load, in my opinion. Uh, but let me just extend it out a bit more because we're talking about these um, uh, uh, things that excite me at the moment and, and, and big themes that are coming through. And the other one we've had, which has not really got to move on, and I think it's partly uh, rules-based is these community batteries that could, you know, make the whole grid much more resilient and uh, and offer much more opportunities for little regions and suburbs to contribute uh, and to be uh, sharing power around the place. Do you think this this could be a year where community batteries get uh, a bit more of a move on? I suppose they'll have to come down in price. We have to improve the economics. <laughs> well, it certainly will be if Labor... Oh, sorry, Tim, I was going to say, it certainly will be if Labor get into power because I can't quite remember how many community batteries they promised to install, but um, there's an awful lot of them about, um, under their policy. But over to you, Tim. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to note there's clearly been a huge surge in commodity prices around the world and and battery costs are going to uh, plateau, if not go up this year on the back of that as a short-term factor. But uh, I'm with you, David, on the simplifying the and building grid resilience and strength through the development of electric vehicles. I can just picture the regulators with Angus Taylor sitting on top of them, trying to obstruct and slow this inevitable transition. And so they're going to struggle to keep up with the rule changes needed to simplify the system and make it more reliable. So I agree with what you were saying, David. Uh, and I just, uh, I'll, I'll shut up for a second, but I just want to point out that Australia's in, in the lead in this. You know, we, we have the biggest, uh, we are moving to an inverter based grid faster than any, any other significant size grid uh, in, in the whole world. You, you know, it, at the, if you look at the step change, which is what essentially 70% of people vote, uh, stakeholders voted was the likely scenario. Of course, they might change their mind next month. Uh, but 70% of it thought it was step change or, or more aggressive. Uh, and and that means all the coal stations close and we become inverter-based. This is incredibly exciting. It offers new business models, uh, new ways of doing things. And uh, presumably people in reg- regional and rural areas uh, will have a more resilient grid, as we're seeing in West Australia, I think, in the regions and stuff like that. And I think also, you know, for countries like India, uh, uh, and, and places where electricity has been very hard. Last time I looked, there were still 70 million Indians that didn't have any power at all. Uh, uh, you know, this offers a, this sort of distributed technology offers them a terrific opportunity, I think, uh, to, to run their own affairs. Absolutely, David. I couldn't agree more. I'm still going to keep a very, very close eye on India and China because both countries are moving million miles an hour. And we were just looking at, um, we were talking about commodity price inflation. We were just calculating the numbers. Prime Minister Modi is staring at a $21 billion budget blowout because of LNG fertiliser import subsidies. So when Prime Minister Modi talks about energy security for India and keeping deflation in the system, he is embracing with both hands the massive, massive opportunities that decarbonisation comes and he's got to actually move very, very fast because India is drowning in very, very volatile and expensive fossil fuel imports. And from that I'm talking oil, gas, coking coal, thermal coal and now very, very central to the radar, ammonia nitrate, ammonia nitrate fertiliser prices. And India, yes, but I mean, China has uh, has a very coal-based uh, system and, uh, you know, a very energy-intensive economy that's going to get killed by high coal prices. That's why I'm such an optimist about Australian and aluminium. And even Japan has, you know, imports all its oil and uh, coal and gas, uh, and they can do the offshore wind thing, you know, uh, if they really get on with it. And all these countries, uh, I think, uh, the, uh, renewables and batteries offer them a chance to become more energy independent and to fix their price of energy for the next 50 years in a way that they have never been possible for them before. 100% agreed. Energy security is enhanced through this decarbonisation. Let's get on to hydrogen because I think that's going to be one of the major discussion points in the year. There's we we see a lot of hydrogen announcements, um, green hydrogen, um, certainly in the um, uh, the AEMO um, 
uh, planning document. I've uh, got that could actually become reality sometime in the next couple of years. That sort of assumes that green hydrogen becomes economic at scale, um, supplying certain industries, not everything. Um, but there still seems to be a lot of greenwashing going on. Um, I don't know whether David or Tim want to have a go at this. Uh, we've seen this. I'm, I'm not too sure where to start. Actually, it just what seems to happen all across the uh, all, all across the all across the thing at the moment. We've seen the big sort of the the, the, the first um, ship, uh, sort of you know, reasonably interesting because it was the first time that liquid liquid hydrogen had been sort of shipped across the seas. But unfortunately, it was um, came from brown coal. Um, we've seen big support for a supposedly multi-billion dollar urea project with hydrogen, but as we pointed out in an analysis today, um, that amounts to 1.25% of the supply will be hydrogen, and that um, will actually start thinking with about 0.1% reduction in emissions. Um, how we, I mean, do we need to worry about this greenwashing? Are we inevitably going to go to green hydrogen rather than just fossil fuel hydrogen and carbon capture? I'll hand over to Tim, but uh, you could write a song about it all across the universe, couldn't you? Uh, but over to you, Tim. Thanks. No, I, I have very strong views on it. I think you absolutely nailed it uh, last week in your rebuttal of the greenwash that Jay Power and the federal government and the Victorian government in Australia, uh, they were on their bloody high horses talking about the clean hydrogen they were exporting. It is a coal gasification project with $500 million of subsidies. It is pure greenwash. And I've pointed that out to the directors of J Power. And I actually said, if they were raising money in America, they need to be really careful because the SEC has come out along with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the US Fed. And they said they will nail investors for investor deception if they continue with greenwash. And to me, you nailed it. That project down in the Latrobe Valley is a subsidised coal gasification project. Uh, sure, we've got to learn how to export liquid hydrogen at some point. It will be commercially viable. It, they need to learn by doing. That's important. But the greenwash involved, I mean, I was talking to one of the directors and he goes, oh, but we've bought three accus Hang on, three accus, $15 a tonne when they bought them two years ago. That's $45 out of $500 million of investment. And he went on and on about carbon capture and storage. I said, have you done any carbon capture? No, 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 no. we could. Okay, are you doing any this decade? No, we're not doing any this decade, but we could. And I said, so you're greenwashing. Oh, no, 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 we've, we've, we've offset it with three accus. I mean, talk about farcical. You, you nailed that one, Giles. And uh, I think we, it will be an issue. And we've seen in Europe just this week, we've seen the taxonomy. Gas is a transition fuel. That crap, the lobbyists that the gas industry has clearly got to the EU government. But finance is not going to fall for it. I mean, methane gas is not a transition fuel. We've seen the satellite tracking of methane venting. I think that is going to be absolutely a top theme for 2022. Yeah, Tim, uh, I guess I have a slightly more nuanced view. Well, not nuanced, but I, I, I agree with that generally. But I don't think people in Asia are going to buy hydrogen at all uh, uh, unless it's green, because otherwise it's just it's not economic for them to buy uh, hydrogen and convert everything to hydrogen unless they're going to decarbonise. That's the only real incentive. And you can't bullshit about decarbonising really uh, 
So in the end, I think the economics uh, uh, will uh, push everyone towards green hydrogen, and I think a certification scheme will, will be in place. But I can understand, right, like you said, Tim, right at the beginning, uh, how you might have a bit of a mixture of stuff while you're getting the supply chain up and running, uh, knowing that you're going to convert it all to green. If you've got a project that's always going to be uh, brown, no matter what you do, then then that, I don't see the future for that particularly. But uh, I think if you were like, uh, I don't know, pick my favourite project because I don't know enough about all the others, the Stanwell one in Queensland, and you wanted to run it a bit off the grid just to get it started, knowing you were going to cut the grid off or the grid was going to go green and you were going to do it all, then, 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 then I could be uh, a lot more understanding. No, I agree, David. I mean, the certification program is absolutely clear. It's only Australia that's crapping on about blue hydrogen. I mean, the rest of the world is talking green hydrogen. Why are you going to pay for the technology learning by doing to get green hydrogen up the scale, get it commercially viable and deployed in the hundreds of gigawatts? You're not going to stuff around going down, back down the fossil hydrogen route and pretend CCS works. It's just not going to happen. Only in Angus Taylor's mind and in the Minerals Council of Australia and APIA's mind does that actually, that scenario have any credibility whatsoever. And uh, as you said, Japan, Korea, China, they've made huge commitments on decarbonisation. They're struggling to work out how they implement that cost competitively, commercially, at scale. And that's going to be the challenge for this decade. But uh, the rest of the world's talking green hydrogen. Only the Australian federal government's talk and the Victorian government's mm -hmm. talking fossil hydrogen. But even when we're talking about green hydrogen, sometimes we're getting our decisions a bit wonky. Um, there's been a lot of controversy over the Curry Curry gas plant, which we've talked about, which is this sort of almost sort of fast course of gas plant that's been proposed by Snowy Hydro, backed by the federal government um, in the Hunter Valley. Um, ironically, it only actually has eight hours of gas storage, so basically can't, can't actually sort of function uh, much longer than a battery, which would be a lot cheaper. Now, Labor has decided because of the sort of political fine line that it needs to tread that it's going to support this and then um, urge it to go um, rather than sort of 10 or 30% hydrogen by 2030, sort of fully green hydrogen by 2030, which might sound like a noble thing, except for the fact that it's going to cost them probably twice as much to do so. And I think in the, you know, in the, there's a couple of really good graphs about the sort of the ladders of what green hydrogen can actually do and what it probably won't be able to do in a competitive way. And standalone power stations in a main grid is probably not one of them. David, Look, any thoughts? I... I, I, I um... There is a role for something to do the last 5 or 10% of decarbonisation in a grid, the seasonal uh, sort of thing in midwinter uh, when the wind hasn't been blowing and there's never much solar. Uh, and maybe that's for hydrogen down the track, but we're not going to be getting there tomorrow. Uh, I'll just uh, leave it at that. And as far as politics go, which we really should stay off because we're already half an hour into our listeners' attention, but I'll just, point out, David. <laughs> I'll just point out that we've got all these voices of candidates running around the place uh, who invariably don't see, and Chris Barn will be pissed off with me for saying that, uh, a, a, enough of a focus from either party on decarbonisation and both running behind what the general population wants. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we will speak more on politics, and I'm sure uh, various parties are going to have a lot more to say about exactly what their position is and why it's what it is today, as opposed to what it might be after an election. But uh, let's leave, I'll leave it there.
Well, you leave it there, but I'm just going to bring in Tim because we might not have Tim back on for a while. Um, this is your chance to sort of talk about the politics of the situation. Tim, how much does it matter? Um, how important is this election going to be? Um, and how comforted are you that even though it may not be explained very well in the public arena, behind the scenes, both parties, um, the coalition still, you know, not so much, but they are actually accepting the idea that we're actually transitioning much more than they'd ever care to admit through their um, policy announcements. Um, even the coalition accepts it would be 70% renewables in the main grid by 2030. Labor goes even further, 82%, which is around where AEMO sees it, um, if we don't even go even quicker. Um, yeah, how important is it going to be? I think it's absolutely critical for Australia and uh, I'm with David. At the end of the day, both sides of the politics, meaning Labor versus Liberal versus the Nats, they all accept um, major donations from the fossil gas industry with the Greens as the exception and the Independents as the exception. So they're all bought and paid for on the gas. And so I'm with David. I, I do think the uh, ALP is a hell of a lot better than the Liberals, but they're still hamstrung by the fact that they're taking donations from massive fossil fuel companies who, instead of paying donations, should be paying some royalties, they should be saying corporate taxes, and they should be pricing in this massive, massive externality they've inflicted on the rest of us. And at the end of the day, they have to embrace the inevitable transition. Now, the good news is, and I am very, very bullish, I mean, the last three, four, five weeks has been a string of announcements Global finance is moving so fast. Every CEO, every fossil fuel CEO, the Woodside CEO has to acknowledge to every shareholder that they go and meet with from now on, they've got to have a very, very clear path to decarbonisation. They've got to have clear interim targets and they've got to have a credible path that isn't there for the two minute spin in the political speak. They've got to actually explain it in credible finance terms. And I think as finance gets up to speed, I, I've just been watching Larry Fink go up the learning curve. Okay, he's still spinning. He's still trying to come to grips with it. But to me, finance has really understood this is a hundred trillion dollar investment opportunity over the next 40 years and the major corporates like Reliance Industries of India, uh, Twiggy here with Fortescue in Australia, they've embraced this massive, massive opportunity. They see $100 trillion. Even Larry Fink gets starry-eyed at a $100 trillion opportunity in his 5% share of that. And so they are embracing those opportunities. So get out of the way. All these fossil fuel Luddites running boards in Australia are just going to get Even Vanguard said next year they're going to vote against fossil fuel Luddites if they don't have a clear, credible interim target. And uh, well, that would count out most of the fossil fuel companies in Australia, starting with Santos and Woodside. <laughs> and I just want to make a point, Giles, to... I mentioned this a lot, but we, I, in New South Wales, it, I am happy that New South Wales sold off its electricity assets as they did in Victoria. I know there's still a lot of uh, people that don't think that was a good idea, but I question whether Matt Keane, who has really taken the bull by the horns, I think there's just, you can't question that, and brought everyone along with him uh, for the ride, could actually have done that uh, if he wasn't in a position to take an inde a truly independent view and get, you know, it's not... You know, he gets the Hunter Jobs Alliance on side. He gets the, yeah, uh, which is, you know, it's important that, uh, and it shows that the fact that everyone is on side <laughs> shows that there is actually a will for it. 
Exactly, David, and it's it's not left or right. I mean, what a stupid phrase. Either you're a Luddite or you accept the science, you accept the opportunity, you accept this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for Australia to be a world superpower in renewable energy in all of these new industries, and Matt Keane understands that. And as you said, he's managed to broke the political divide and just push Australia forward, sorry, New South Wales forward to seize the opportunity. And that's what makes me annoyed about our federal government. It's the fact that they are trying to hold back the tide and it's impossible, it's futile, and we're just missing out on opportunities. And this is a, Australia is so well placed to seize this massive opportunity. Well, I think that's a optimistic and a good way to end the podcast. Um, David, listen, got any uh, final few words? Uh, no, that, that you know, I, I also look. Uh, I'd love to see if I win the lottery that some major retailer, I'm talking one of the big three or four, would actually commit to having only green energy. Uh, uh, that would be a, a wonderful thing, and I think that retailer would make a lot more money than any of the others. But none of them can face up to that at the moment either. <laughs> Charles, can, can I finish on one extra positive note, if I may? Of course, off you go. Wonderful. I think 2022 is just going to be a phenomenal year globally, and it was probably summed up absolutely best by the announcement last week by SSAB about their hybrid fossil-free free steel project. It was just beautiful listening to the CEO saying we're bringing forward the commercial rollout of the decarbonisation of the Nordic steel industry by 15 years. We're going to be fully decarbonised by 2030 and just accelerating the momentum. And you see that whether you're looking at the EU ETS, whether you look at anything that President Xi of China talks about, he's talking about all in on the massive opportunities, the technology, the investment, the employment um, opportunities, put aside the environmental opportunities as just an added bonus. And I just loved the SSAB. What a great way to start the year. Let's bring forward by 15 years from 2045 to 2030, the full decarbonisation of the Swedish steel industry. And uh, China is going to do the same thing, not, not on that same time frame. America's already miles ahead because they've got electric arc furnaces and really high scraps recycling rates. But that's the pressure that's going to be on Blue Scope this year to decarbonise their steel industry. And anyway, I just think it's a great way to start. The momentum, the technology innovation, the investment, it's all going one direction. Only the federal government of Australia is standing in the way of the inevitable and they will just get steamrolled by the markets, if not by the community voters. <laughs> well, on that very happy note, thank you very much, Tim, for your contribution today and um, good luck with the, uh, with the new venture. Brilliant. Thanks, Giles. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Good. And thank you, David. And we'll be back next week. We've got a really good interview uh, with one of the senior executives um, from uh, one of those big retailers next week. So we look we've forward to that. Oh, oh, I shouldn't say which one. But and we've also got should thank our, our, our sponsors, should we, Giles? So I'm always very grateful to. <laughs> I was just getting to that. Yes, of course, um, Evergen and Pylon um, for your continued support. And of course, everybody out there listening to this podcast, um, the number of downloads um, last year was just extraordinary. Let's hope that continues. And we'll be back here every week um, for the rest of the year. So look forward to those discussions as we go forward. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen. 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.